Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to some. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying these 40 days. Prayer, fasting, mi- just stunning midweek meetings we've been having. If you haven't been to one, you, you must you must come along because you're missing out. Okay, They've just been fantastic times together in the presence of God. And so we're covering these themes that uh, we consider to be absolutely core to us as a church. And in times of things changing in the church, these are things which will always remain absolutely core to us. There are some things which will never change. And so we've heard about community. Last week, uh, we heard about the Word of God, the Bible. Stuart spoke on that. And this week, as Neil said, it's the the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read some extracts from the first couple of chapters of Acts. Um, And I know for many of us, of course, these these are really familiar. We've heard these, we've read these a number of times but let's not be over-familiar and just and miss the wonder of what God is doing in these couple of chapters of Acts. Let's not miss that. And of course, for some it's not familiar. For some here, this will be completely new. So let's all be listening to this as if it's for the first time. And, and listen for what God is saying to us today through this. Listen to what he's saying to us. Be expectant for what he's going to do in us today. Okay, so I'm going to start here in Acts 1. If you have your Bibles, follow with me. The words will also be on the screen. So Acts 1 and and, um, verse 4, Jesus has been resurrected. He's appearing to the disciples, and he's he's about to be ascended to heaven. And it says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty tall order that he's giving this group of people, isn't it? To the ends of the earth. Let's skip forward to chapter 2, and we see we come into the fulfillment. Jesus has ascended to heaven, they're waiting in Jerusalem, we come into the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, We're going to skip forward. A crowd has gathered. Peter is addressing this crowd. And in verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And he has poured out what you now see and hear. And another thing he said to them in verse 38, he said to this crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. That means you and me. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us again. Because we need you. 
We need this. We read this in the Bible, but we know this is not just for then. It is for now. So we ask, Lord, today, speak to us. Do something in our hearts. Pour out your spirit on us again today. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. This is so much a part of our DNA. I mean, the the work of the Spirit, the the baptism of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, it's at the core of, of what we do, of everything we do. It's at the very heart of who we are as individuals and as a church. It's a distinctive of this church and other churches like us who hold to this position on the baptism of the Spirit because not all churches do. Not all churches believe that the baptism of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are for today, that they ceased with the apostles in the Bible, or, or when the Bible was completed, they, they ceased, they're no longer necessary or relevant. But our, our theology, our reading, our understanding of the Bible, and actually our experience would say no. No, God absolutely seeks to baptize his people in the Spirit today. He absolutely wants to pour out his Spirit on us today. The gifts of the Spirit are very much in operation today. We've already seen it this morning. God speaking to us prophetically. Those words we just heard have spoken directly into some of your hearts. That's, that's the gifts of the Spirit, God speaking prophetically. It is absolutely for today. And in fact, as I read in Acts 2 just then, This is the promise of God for all Christians at all times. You may have already read the 40 days notes today. You may have noticed there's a little bit more scripture to read um, this week. Um, But if you've read the 40 days notes today, you will know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit made the decisive difference in the beginnings of this church. Took this small group of believers meeting in a living room in Hazelmere and turned everything upside down. Increased their joy, increased their love for Jesus, just brought, it just changed everything. And people started coming and getting saved because of what they saw, because of what they could see in this, in this group of people. They could see the power of God at work. This would be a very different church. It would probably be a non existent church without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then and now, and all the times in between. A little bit later, I'm going to take you on a, a whistle stop tour of the book of Acts to try and establish what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how does it work? How does it happen? What do we mean by it? What's it like? What should we expect with the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then we're going to pray. We're going to pray for you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or for those who want to, we're going to pray for you. And I'm confident that for some of us today, we'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because God is like that. But first, before I get to there, I just want to establish why it's important. What is the effect of being baptized with the Spirit? Well, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, Christianity is incendiarism. Christianity is fire setting. A Christian is a person set on fire. Does that describe you? Is that how others would describe you? A Christian who is just on fire for God. John Wesley, the famous a uh, great 19th century preacher, he said this. He said, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. That's exactly what happened to us. Not literally, of course, because I don't think his ministry would have progressed very far, but it's what happened to him. People came from miles around to hear John Wesley preach the gospel because he was so full of God. He was so, had so much passion and energy for the gospel. He was so compelling that people came to listen to him. And as they listened to him preach the gospel, people would be saved. People would turn to Christ and give themselves to him. They would be born again. 
Have you ever tried to light a barbecue um, with damp coals? Coals that have been hanging around for a while, and they're just inside, they're just damp. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. If you have, you will know you could use lots of matches, whole box of matches. You could put fire lighters in there, you could pour lighter fluid on there. It's just really difficult to get these coals to take, to kind of, to, to catch that fire, to, 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 to light. And I, I suspect, um, at the risk of being presumptuous, I suspect that for most of us in here today, the Christian life often, or maybe even always, feels a lot less like Kierkegaard's quote and a lot more like damp coals. You may have high aspirations for your Christian life of all the fires that you're going to set all over the place, the conversations you're going to have with people, you know, in the spirit, the, all the friends, all the people you're going to bring to Christ, all the healings, all the miracles that you're going to be involved in, but the reality is somewhat less fiery. Than that. Maybe it's all a bit of a struggle. Actually, maybe more often than not, you find yourself lacking in courage, lacking in faith, and you're just pleased to get through the week. And the sparks that you may feel on a Sunday morning or, a, or in a midweek meeting, those sparks, the heat of being in the presence of God and in the presence of his people, that heat can kind of dissipate very quickly, and maybe even by the time you reach the door of your car. The fact is, you can't start any fires unless you yourself have been set on fire by God. You will start nothing. You know, when you light a barbecue with good charcoal, with decent charcoal, you see what happens when you light it? A few of the coals take the fire first. They catch that fire, whichever one the firelighter is touching or whatever. You know, they catch the fire, they start to glow, they get that kind of greyish tinge going on. But then what happens is, they start to affect the coals just around them. The fire, the heat spreads from one coal to another, and then to another, and then to another. And this fire, this heat, just continues to spread. It's exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. Jesus' disciples have been set on fire by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see them, they're speaking in tongues, they've, they're utterly changed people. They've been set on fire at Pentecost, then that fire spreads, because on that day, 3,000 people are saved and baptized in water. On that one day in Jerusalem, 3,000 people saved and baptized. They then go back to their nations and take the gospel with them, and the gospel spreads. The fire continues to spread. The world is turned upside down. I don't know, within 100, 150 years, the world is utterly turned upside down by Christianity. They're immediately fulfilling that seemingly impossible command of Jesus to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And there is absolutely no accounting for that. There is zero chance of that happening apart from the baptism and the effects of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because these people have very little going for them. You take Peter and John, they're leaders... These are uneducated fishermen from some backwater in Galilee, insignificant. They both deserted Jesus on the night that he was arrested. These are not men who are exactly full of courage. Peter disowned Jesus. He he denied even knowing Jesus. There's only about 120 of Jesus' followers left. Jesus has gone. He's no longer with them. They're they're waiting, they're hiding, they're they're confused, they're, they're afraid. This is a bunch of damp coals. These are very ordinary people, but they have an extraordinary God. And the Spirit comes. He comes, as Jesus promised he would, and changes everything. He utterly transforms them, he sets them on fire, and the fire spreads. 
Now, I, when I was in France, a student living in France for a year, I, I encountered the kind of barbecue problem that I've already described. And we discovered a good way, actually, of lighting, uh, lighting a barbecue. And it was using one of these things. Okay. Let me just get it fired up. This is a heat gun used for stripping paint, usually. But we kind of discovered, actually, if you... There you go. It's starting to glow now. If you, um, if you use one of these, this will light up any barbecue you like. At, no matter how damp the coals are, because this starts to... I won't know. This starts to chuck out some pretty intense heat. But I looked at this in the week, and I thought, it's not very spectacular for a sermon illustration, is it? So I thought, maybe... Maybe this would be better. So... You have no idea of the oh, temptation. No. Um, <laughs> this will light any barbecue. This will take the dampest of coals and set them on fire eventually. And it's like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He can take the dampest of coals. He can take the most miserable Christian... He can take the most ineffective Christian, the most cowardly and weak Christian, and he can set them on fire. Set them on fire with joy, with passion, with strength, with courage, and above all, a burning love for Jesus. I'd better put that down. Are you full of the Spirit? You know, sometimes Christians who come to churches like ours are called Spirit-filled Christians. Um, it's a reference to what we believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But spirit-filled shouldn't just be a category. It should be a lived-out experience. And I guess I would expect someone who's described as being spirit-filled to actually be spirit-filled, as in full, full of the Spirit. But I'm usually not. I'm usually not, and I guess my guess is that you're not either. Well, how do we know? How do we know how full we might be or not of the Spirit? Well, here are some indicators that might be helpful just to think about. Some, you know, use this as a, a little diagnostic for yourself. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of power. He's the spirit of power. Jesus promised that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. The Holy Spirit comes, as we've read, and something erupts. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, there's speaking in tongues, there's rooms shaking, there's healings, there's miracles, there's unbelievable boldness, and God's mission is being fulfilled. You know, only because he has equipped them to do it, only because he has empowered them. The only hope we have for accomplishing God's mission for us in this town and beyond is to be empowered by him, is to be filled with his power. It's like a car can only run if it's been filled up with fuel, if it's been filled with petrol. How much do you experience God's power in your life? How aware are you of God's power in your life? How full of the Spirit are you? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of purity. He is called the Holy Spirit because he is holy. Galatians 5 pulls no punches here. It says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In other words, if you're full of the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, you will steer clear of sin. You will stay free of sin. So where are you on the purity scale? How full of the Spirit are you? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of assurance. Romans 5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's 
children. The Holy Spirit brings absolute assurance of God's love for you. And that you belong to him forever. And that can never be broken. He can bring full assurance of your salvation and no doubts. Never a doubt. Never those days when you wonder where God has gone. Never that thought of, you know, does God really love me? Or how could God possibly love someone like me? Am I just pretending to be a Christian? Or maybe for some it's even that fear that when you get to the day of judgment, you will be one of those people to whom Jesus says, in the end, away from me, I never knew you. No, no, with the Holy Spirit, you can know full assurance of your salvation. So how would you describe your levels of assurance and, or doubt? How full of the Spirit are you? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of presence. Jesus had said to his disciples, it's for your good that I'm going away. This didn't feel like very good news for them at all. But it was, it was good news because he sent the Spirit, the presence of Jesus with you all the time. See, last week in the 40 days notes, we, one of the things we read was about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that? And Jesus was walking along with them. They don't realize it's him. This is after he's been resurrected and he's talking with them, explaining the scriptures. Afterwards, they said, you know, when they realized who it was, they said, you know, our hearts were burning within us. As we walked along with him on the road, as they were in the presence of Jesus, their their hearts were burning. They were aware of something they just didn't realize. And then they break bread and their eyes are open. They realize it's him. This is Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus. He's back and and they're full of joy. And then Jesus disappears. And they're no longer in his presence. It's not like that anymore. Jesus doesn't disappear. The Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of Jesus to millions and millions, all at once, all at the same time, and all the time. How aware of his presence in your life are you? As you go through your day, how aware are you of the presence of Jesus with you? How full of the Spirit are you? There's lots more. You could say here, he's the Spirit of prophecy. He is the Spirit who gives gifts. He's the Spirit who brings joy. He's the Spirit of adoption. He's the Spirit who points you to Jesus. He will always glorify Jesus. You will love Jesus more when you are filled with the Spirit. So, power, purity, assurance, presence, love for Jesus. How full of the Spirit are you? Of course, as I've already mentioned, some Christians believe that there is no separate kind of filling or experience of the Holy Spirit. That you get all of that at conversion. That is when you are filled with the Spirit. That is when you receive the fullness of the Spirit. And certainly it's because of the Holy Spirit that you were born again. If you've been born again, it's because of him. He's the one who called you from death to life. You couldn't do that yourself. You were dead. He called you from death to life. If you're born again, it's because he has done a work in you. It's entirely him. You are born again of the Spirit. But Martin Lloyd-Jones famously responded to those in his congregation who thought that that was everything, that was all you got, by saying, got it all? You, you, you think you've got it all? Well, if you've got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? If you've got it all, why are you so unlike the New Testament Christians? Got it all? Got it at your conversion? Well, where is it, I ask? No, we need to experience God. We absolutely need to encounter God. Not just know he's there. It's not enough just to know that God is there. We need to experience him. The word baptism is in itself an experiential word, the word that Jesus used. It's an experiential word. It means be immersed, be drenched. If you've been baptized in water, you know you've been baptized in water. 
Because you're soaking wet, you're absolutely dripping wet, you're soaked through. If you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is an experiential thing. And how can it not be? I mean, come on, how can this not be an experiential thing if we're talking about being filled with the love and the power of God? The one who created the entire universe, the one who created you and me, being filled with his power, his love. The prophet Joel talked about the Spirit being poured out. It's an image repeated throughout Scripture. Poured out, not a drizzle, not a sprinkling, a flooding, poured out. Luke talked about being clothed with power. Jesus talked about receiving power. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit is no less than being absolutely soaked through with the very person and love and power of God himself. Have you experienced that? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And for those of you who have, are you still full? Or do you still hark back to that time in the 70s or that Bible week in the 80s or that time in 1994? See, the question really is not about were you filled then? The question is, are you full now? Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be filled with the Spirit on an ongoing basis. Be filled and go on being filled. It is a command. We see it happen in the Bible, in Acts, with Peter. We've already read about how Peter and all the others were filled, were baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost. If you skip forward a couple of chapters to Acts 4, we find Peter and John before the Jewish ruling council. They're in a bit of trouble. They're having a bit of a telling off. And it says in verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he goes on and makes this incredibly bold speech. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's either still full or he's being filled again to equip him for this moment. And then, later in chapter 4, they go back to a house where some of the other Christians are gathered and they pray, and it says that the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Peter was filled again and again and again. You can be filled and empowered again and again and again, and in fact, you need to be. We all need to be. We need to be refueled. We need to be filled again. We need to be set on fire again because the flames so easily die down and go out in us. We need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, if Acts chapter 2 was the only... Uh, New Testament record we had of people being filled with the Spirit, we might make some conclusions from that. We might sort of say, okay, it seems that to be filled with the Spirit, to be baptized with the Spirit, you always have to be together with other people in a house. There has to be the sound of a rushing wind. There has to be these tongues of fire on your head, and you have to speak in tongues. Actually, some Christians would say that speaking in tongues does have to accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that it's the evidence that you've been baptized with the Spirit. I don't go along with that, and you'll see why in a minute. But we don't have to draw those conclusions, because they'll be wrong. We don't have to draw those conclusions, because there are other instances in the book of Acts of people being filled with the Spirit. And so let's have a brief look at them to see what they have in common, what they don't have in common, and what we can learn from them. So if you're in your Bibles, follow along with me, because this isn't going to come up on the screen value of having your Bible with you. Um, Go forward to Acts chapter 8. In Acts 8, we've got an evangelist called Philip, who's been preaching the gospel in Samaria. So that's north. He's gone north, north of Jerusalem. Um, The reason he's there is because there's been persecution in Jerusalem, and Christians have been scattered, 
And so Philip finds himself in Samaria preaching the gospel, and many people in Samaria, many Samaritans, have responded to Philip's preaching and been saved. They've turned to Christ. They've become Christians, and they've been baptized in water. And then the apostles back in Jerusalem hear what's going on. And um, they send Peter and John up there to investigate, you know, to check out, is this real? Is this genuine? Is it a genuine conversion? Just to see what's happening. And then in verse 15, it says, when they arrived, when Peter and John arrived, they prayed for them, these Samaritan believers, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Spirit. So these Samaritans have already become Christians. They're already believers. They've been baptized in water. And then there's a gap, maybe a week, maybe a couple of weeks, we don't know, however long it took the news to get back to Jerusalem and for Peter and John to get up there. Then they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they're baptized when Peter and John lay their hands on them and they pray. No mention here of speaking in tongues, incidentally. Although we do know that something happened that was visible because I haven't got time to go into it, but if you look at the context of this, there's a chap in this here called Simon who responds in a certain way which tells us he saw something happen. So this was visible. Right, skip forward to Acts chapter 9. You come to Saul, who would later become Paul, the one who planted many churches and wrote a lot of the New Testament. Saul has been persecuting the church. And then he has this amazing, incredible conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He sees Jesus. So he's now a believer. He, he believes that Jesus died and rose again for him, for his sins. He is now a follower of Christ. Three days later, a man called Ananias. In fact, Paul has also been struck blind by this experience on the road to Damascus. Three days later, this man called Ananias. This is not the same Ananias as you find in Acts 5, because he's dead. Um, this, is, this Ananias has not been mentioned before. And he's not mentioned since. Why do I say that? It's because he's just an ordinary believer. He's an ordinary Christian. He hears the voice of God. He follows God's prompting to go to the house where Saul was to pray for him. And then in verse 17, it says, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized. So this is three days after he has become a Christian. It's after conversion. Hands have been laid on him. Again, there's no mention of speaking in tongues, although we do know from his writings that Paul definitely does speak in tongues. Go forward to Acts chapter 10. We have Peter risking scandal by being in the house of a man called Cornelius, who is a Roman Gentile. He's a non-Jew. And that's scandalous for Peter to be doing this. Peter's just following God's prompting here. But he's in the middle of preaching the gospel, Peter. He hasn't even finished explaining the message. He's in the middle. And then in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So this happens all at once. They're converted as they hear the gospel. And they're filled with the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, all at the same time. There's no laying on of hands here. The Spirit is just spontaneously, he, he is poured out. 
And then they're baptized in water later on. Peter commands them to be baptized, which is an interesting approach. But they do speak in tongues. It says they speak in tongues. Last one, Acts 19. This is Paul in Ephesus, and he's talking to a group of people who at first he thinks are believers, because it describes them as disciples. And so he asked them, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? Notice the expectation in Paul that they either would have done or they're going to. It's an absolute expectation. It's the question they always ask. Oh, so did you get filled with the Spirit? Because if not, I'm going to pray for you. Right? It's an absolute expectation. Well, they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul digs a bit deeper, and it turns out actually these people are disciples of John the Baptist. And so Paul tells them about Jesus, and he says, you know, actually John was pointing his followers towards Jesus. And um, in verse 5, it says, On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. So they heard the gospel, they responded immediately, they get baptized in water immediately, and then they're prayed for, laying on of hands, and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. Well, so what do we make of all this? That's a few scriptures from Acts. What do we make of all of those accounts? Well, we can see that while this can happen at the same time as conversion, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a distinct experience from conversion. It is an experience, and it is a distinct experience. So it is possible to be a Christian without having been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see sometimes the Holy Spirit is received through the laying on of hands, sometimes not. We see sometimes it's recorded that they spoke in tongues, sometimes it's not. Which is why I don't think you can say you have to speak in tongues as the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I would encourage you in that gift. If you've not received the gift of tongues, I'd very much encourage you to ask for it. I first spoke in tongues sitting down here, actually, on this, on this front row. I'd already experienced being filled with the Spirit several times previously. There was worship going on, so there was noise. I couldn't be overheard. I asked God to give me the gift of tongues, and I started speaking. And that's the point. You speak in tongues. It's an act of faith. It's an act of trusting in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables you, but you speak. You use your vocal cords. So it's no good asking, Lord... Give me the gift of tongues, please. And then just waiting, and nothing's happening, I'm going to give up on this. No, 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 you speak. You speak in tongues. So I started speaking in tongues, and then, of course, Satan whispers in my ear, you're making this up. This is nonsense, gibberish, rubbish, ridiculous. Don't be so silly, stop immediately, you're making it up. You're making a fool of yourself. Which, thankfully, I ignored and kept speaking in tongues. That's what you do. You ignore it. You expect that to happen. Expect the voice of Satan. Expect it and ignore it and then carry on speaking. Terry Virgo tells the story of when he first spoke in tongues. And he had the same fear. He said, I'm making making this up. I'm making this up. And somebody who was with him said, well, you're very clever making this up because you've been making it up for a long time now. Because he'd been speaking in tongues for several minutes. I just want to encourage you. If you don't speak in tongues, ask for the gift. It's a brilliant gift. It's an amazing gift. Ask God and then speak. It's like Elisha and the the miracle he did in 2 Kings 4 with the small jar of oil, with the widow's oil. And the the miracle was that she, she started pouring this jug of oil, this small jar, into all these other jars, and they kept on filling up, filling up, filling up, and it kept coming, it kept coming, it kept coming. The miracle was that, though. The miracle was, it was as she started pouring the oil that it kept flowing. The jar didn't just fill up and overflow. 
You see the difference? It's like when Peter walked on the water. What, what happened there? He said to Jesus, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And then Peter used his own arms and his own legs to get himself out of the boat and to walk miraculously on the water towards Jesus. He didn't hear Jesus say, come, and then wait to be levitated out of the boat and float towards Jesus. No, he had to use his body, his, his legs. Well, it's the same with speaking in tongues. Ask God, but then start speaking. And trust that this is from him. Okay? Gift of tongues. Fantastic. The main thing that I think we get from all these passages is the expectation. All would receive. All Christians. It's just part of your Christian life. It's essential. It's not optional. So in a minute, we're going to have an opportunity to receive. And who knows? Maybe get a bit of this. Ignite some damp coal stay. Maybe you find this a bit scary. Um... That's okay, don't worry. Because actually, in one sense, the Holy Spirit is like that. He is like a blowtorch, but he is also a gentleman. He, he knows you inside out. He knows your fears. He won't make you do anything you don't want to do. He's not like that. He won't force himself upon you. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. If somebody had gone up to Jesus at that point and said, yes, please, I want a drink, I want the Spirit, he'd have had to say, no, you've got to wait. I haven't been glorified yet, you have to wait. But then in Acts 2, as we've already read, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life. He, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. In other words, now he's been glorified. Now he has been glorified. He has received the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. He has been glorified. You no longer have to wait. That thing that Jesus was talking about in John 7, it's happened. You don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit anymore. He, he, is, he is being poured out now. He's being poured out as we speak. This promise, he says, is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So the question really is, are you a Christian? Are you born again? Well, then this promise is for you. It's for you. It seems the only qualification is to be thirsty. Jesus didn't say, come to me, all you who are holy. Come to me, you who are very impressive, who are worthy, who pray a lot. No, no, come, all you who are thirsty, come and drink. This is not something you earn. It's not a reward for being a good Christian. Peter's denial hardly qualified him for any sort of reward. The Holy Spirit is the gracious gift of God. Gracious gift of God that you receive through faith. You receive through believing that this is true. It's why we went through all these scriptures, to build faith, to see, no, actually, the Bible really does promise this. This is true. You receive this through faith. You receive it by believing that this promise is for you. So are you thirsty? Is anyone thirsty? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he really wants to bless you? That he really wants to pour out his spirit on you? That he really wants a church full of fiery live coals that are going to set fires all over this town? Do you believe that? Then come and drink.